Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 6, 1 through 14. Now, when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambalat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Gashmu also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, Their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in it. And I understood and I saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go. Um, let me just start with this. It, it is a, it's an honor and a privilege to have a pulpit. It's an honor and a privilege to have a church to pastor and to preach to, and it's something that I don't take lightly. This is a unique way that God has given me to serve and to love you as I pray and study and proclaim the word of God to you. 
And as I do this, I sit in my study, I sit in the coffee shop, wherever I am doing this work, and I'm asking God the whole time to give me a word to give to you. But every once in a while, a sermon comes along that isn't for you. Every once in a while, a sermon comes along that I don't feel is necessarily for you. Now, it's not that I I pulled a generic sermon off the internet. I could do that, but I don't. I'm not ripping off somebody else's ideas. It's not for you in the sense that its primary target is me, that the Lord wants to speak to me about something. And today seems like one of those sermons. (laughs) And you're here, and you get to listen in on what God has been teaching me and what I believe God is, is saying to me with this unique position that I'm in. Now, as we make our way through Nehemiah chapter 6 today, I want to help you understand why this resonates with me so deeply. Um, I planted Sacred City Moline when I was 28 years old. I would not recommend it. <laughs> it was a bit of a whirlwind. Um, in 2017, actually, it's 2016, December of 2016, we were gearing up. We had had a vision night. We were, we were casting this vision of starting a new church in Moline. Uh, my wife was nine months pregnant, and, uh, and we were about to have our second son, Riken. And all of this was hitting at about the same time. I'm literally in the delivery room with my wife, and she's, she's a champ here. And during the breaks, while the contractions die down, I'm on the phone text messaging, trying to dial in the last minute things that have to take place in order for us to start a church in a couple of weeks. It was just chaos. So we have our kid, we have a preview gathering, we launch at the beginning of 2017, and and it was both uh, exciting and pure madness. It was incredible to to cast a vision of of preaching the gospel, of making disciples, of multiplying missional communities to transform, to renew our city, yet I had no idea what I was signing up for. I, I, I had read books about being a pastor. I've read books about church planting. I was actually even part of a church plant at Sacred City Davenport five years before this. But I had no idea what I was signing up for when I said, hey, I'll, I'll be the guy. I'll, I'll be the guy that goes and tries to launch something for the sake of the kingdom advancing here in my city. I was unaware of the challenges that lie ahead. Now, to be honest, part of it was due to my youth, my inexperience, my own, it's just um, immaturities that made it difficult, like navigating 28 years old, trying to pastor people, like, that was wild. But it's also a hard job. Like pastoring, and I'm not trying to say this to make you feel bad for me, pastoring is a very challenging job. And then when you try starting a church on top of that, it just adds a whole another layer of, of difficulty. And so here I was, 28 years old, doing a job that I had no business trying to do. I had read the books. I thought I knew what to expect given my previous experience, but I was wrong. And the thing that I was not necessarily ready for, the thing that caught me off guard, wasn't that um, we would find difficulties and we'd have to navigate and solve problems and overcome, and it wasn't that stuff. Because through the, through the midst of all this, there were a lot of things that went right. I mean, we were 10 months in and we landed ourselves a permanent location. That was incredible. A lot of things went right, but there were a lot of things that went wrong. And these setbacks 
are hard to navigate, and it wasn't necessarily the problem solving that made it difficult. It was dealing with the discouragement that just got in there and just ate away at me. Right? For every one thing that went right, it seemed three things would go wrong, and it would, I would just get in this spot where I felt so discouraged. It's like I'm trying to do something good for Jesus. I'm doing a hard thing for the Lord, and I just can't, I can't get momentum. I can't get things moving. I was not prepared for the level of discouragement that I would face. Now, some days it was just a slow drip, but sometimes, some seasons, it came like a tidal wave. Just unbearable frustration, unbearable discouragement. Now, I wonder if my experience in trying to start a church, planting a church, would link up with what Nehemiah is feeling by chapter six. It appears that in chapter six of Nehemiah, he is experiencing a fresh tidal wave of discouragement. God had called Nehemiah to come back from, from Susa, a Persian land, come back, it was like 800 miles, some, some crazy amount of miles, on foot back to his hometown to rebuild the city of Jerusalem that had been laid waste by rulers who had come in and conquered before him. The temple was destroyed, homes were destroyed, the city walls were destroyed, and God had called Nehemiah to build something. And Nehemiah was able to rally a bunch of people along with him, cast this compelling vision, say, what we're doing here matters. This is important work. Will you contribute? And, and, and everybody rose up. Most people rose up. And they got to work. And what we've seen over the last several chapters is that Nehemiah is just plotting it out. Right? He's facing a lot of challenges, a lot of obstacle, obstacles, but he's going, and, and they're seeing progress as, as they go. And as things are winding down here in chapter six, and actually we'll see next week where they finish building the wall, but as things wind down, there's one final last-ditch effort to try to get them to stop building the wall. See, this whole time while Nehemiah's trying to build the walls of Jerusalem, the, the neighbors, the adversaries of the surrounding regions hated what they were trying to do. They, they hated the fact that, that Israelites thought of themselves as God's people. And they were dwelling in God's city, the city of David. And so they were threatened by that. They, they felt insecure because of this. And so they were doing anything within their reach to stop this building work from happening. Now, we saw this earlier in chapter four where they were threatening war. They were gonna like, physically come into Jerusalem and try to, Nehemiah planned, arranged to, to, to sort of dismantle that threat. Later on, there was some internal turmoil that Nehemiah had to navigate through. But in this last session here, this last session of, of difficulty, we see that things get personal. Things get personal. Nehemiah's enemies aren't just out to stop the building. I mean, that's what they want to do, but the, now they see it, the way that we stop the building is to stop Nehemiah. To ruin Jerusalem means to ruin Nehemiah. Now, this is what it cues us into, your, into here as we open up, if you want to open your Bibles with me, to Nehemiah chapter six, verse one, and we'll see what's going on. 
Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, now these are guys that we've met before back, actually back in chapter two, and then we saw them again in chapter four. These are enemies, they're hostiles, they're, they're adversaries of Nehemiah and the Jews. They, they, uh, and the rest of the enemies, so Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of the enemies heard that I had, that's Nehemiah, built the wall, and there was no breach left in it. So at this point, Nehemiah has built up the stones, all of it is connected, and then he tells us, though, although everything's connected, um, he had not yet set up the doors and the gates. So there were these, these holes in their wall, not completely done, but like 90% done, let's say. They see what's going on, and they, they say, the Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, come and let us meet together at Hecaphrim, I don't know how to say that, in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to, this, to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? So here is something that, that when we first look at this, like they make four requests that Nehemiah would come to this place, to the land of Ono, to the plain of Ono, that they would meet up with Sanballat and Tobiah and, and Geshem, and they would have this sort of like roundtable discussion. And, and you might wonder, like, what's the harm in this? Nehemiah says four times, no, I'm not, I'm not going to come. I'm, I'm not going to come. And, and as readers, we might say, well, what's the, maybe they're trying to bury the hatchet. Like maybe, maybe they've just accepted defeat. They see the walls almost done. And they say, well, I guess we got to just live with this reality now. Let's at least all try to, to hash things out and get all on the same, same page. But what Nehemiah knows, he understands, he has this discerning eye to see that their friendliness is phony. And one of the indicators of this is in verse 1 that he identifies these people not as like enemies turned friends, but straight up enemies. People that are hostile toward him and the work. And he knows that this friendliness is phony and rather, instead of friendliness, hate is bound up in their heart. These enemies despise Nehemiah. They, they hate the fact that he's being successful in the mission that God has called him to. Now, Nehemiah discerns this, he understands this, and because he tells us in verse two that he knows that they intended to do him harm. Now, what, what degree of harm, you might ask? Well, it kind of depends. Let's work through a couple different scenarios. Best case scenario, Nehemiah goes to this place, goes to the plain of Ono, and it takes him a day to get there, a day to meet, and a day to return. That's three days away from the building project. Three days away from the construction zone where Nehemiah is called to. And so best case scenario, Nehemiah gets distracted. People back home don't know what they're doing. Maybe they fumble around a little bit. But the next scenario is not good. It's where this land that Nehemiah is being asked to come visit is actually, it's not a neutral land. There is no neutrality here. Nehemiah is being invited to a land that is hostile towards the Israelites. And just to journey there would be a dangerous endeavor. So a not good scenario, well-intentioned Nehemiah goes to meet and on his way there or on the way home, he gets beat up, hurt in a hostile land. But the worst case scenario, which is most likely, is that Nehemiah goes to Ono and he gets killed, right? These enemies not just want to harm him, but actually want to snuff 
him out, and which makes this, the, the place of Ono a fitting name because it's, oh, oh no, Nehemiah, you gonna get hurt. They're, they're gonna hurt Nehemiah, maybe kill him, and if they do so, they stop the building on the wall. This is because if you can kill a leader, if you can kill a leader, you might just be able to kill the movement. That's really what they're after. They, they want the movement. They want the, the building project to just be cut out. So the easiest way to do this, or I guess maybe a last resort, is to take out Nehemiah. Now, this, this tells us something very important. This shows us that an isolated leader is a vulnerable leader. Like for Nehemiah to leave the people, the place, the job site where he's at, where people are behind him, people are contributing, people are doing great things, to leave that all behind, to go off into a place, to meet with people that are very suspect, can make him susceptible for attack. Now, this is not just true of leadership, but it's also true of, of people. An isolated person is a vulnerable person. My friend, um, church planner in Des Moines, he's got, he, they've got a bunch of sayings. I love them all. They're so great. But, but one of the things that he says uh, is that a person alone in our church is an emergency. Right? To see somebody alone, to see somebody detached, to see somebody isolated is an emergency because of the fact that they are so vulnerable. They're susceptible to attack. Now, for Nehemiah, it was a physical attack. Ne Nehemiah's life supposedly was in danger. But in most cases for us, it's not a physical attack that we're susceptible to, but a spiritual attack. And it usually surfaces in one of two ways. One is in temptation. To be alone makes us more susceptible to temptation, to be detached from a brotherhood of, of community, to not have any accountability means that we are more likely to swerve off of the path of righteousness because nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to know. We're just going to veer off here. Well, when you're alone, you don't have people holding you accountable. That makes you so much more susceptible to going off the path. But there's another way. There's another kind of spiritual attack that often comes when we are alone, and that is despondency. To be isolated to feel disconnected, to feel alone. It makes you feel like it's you against the world. Right? There's nobody in your corner. There's nobody there supporting you, nobody holding you up. And so when hard times come, when difficulties and trials surface in your life, you wonder, does anybody care? And you might resign, right? It just... I, I can't press on. I don't want, well, what's the point? See, these, these spiritual attacks, when we're alone, you see the, the attacks of, of temptation, of, of despondency sort of elevate anytime you get isolated. This is why community is so important. This is why brotherhood, Christian brotherhood is so important. This is why at Sacred City, we say this, if you have not, if you're not part of a missional community, you have not experienced Sacred City Church for what it really is. Because in our church, the thing of our church, the lifeblood of our church is community. 
right? Brothers and sisters rallied around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Put ourselves in missional community or even, even a more tight-knit group of people, a fight club, uh, a handful of people that you're gonna do life with, you're gonna be accountable to, you're gonna share your weaknesses and success and, and praises and, and all of the things that are going on in life, to have that brotherhood or sisterhood. God makes it unignorable for us. When he says, to be alone, it's not good that man would be alone. It's not good to be isolated, to be detached from community. Because an alone person is an emergency. God has made everyone for community. God has made you for relationships. That's because you were created in the image of God and God himself is a triune God. He is a God who exists within relationship in himself. So it's, it's crucial for us to have community, brotherhood. Now, having community doesn't mean that attacks won't come. It's not like, a, it's not like bug spray of trials. You know, you just douse yourself in the, the, the aerosol spray of community and all of the, the mosquitoes of, of trials and difficulties stay away. It doesn't mean attacks won't come. What it does mean is that you'll have support when they do come. It means that you'll have people of the same mind as 1 Peter 3, 8 encourage us to seek and to pursue. You'll have people of the same mind who are encouraging one another, just as, as Hebrews 3, 13 says, it says, but exhort one another or encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is what community is for, to encourage one another. And as, as I'm encouraged by you and you encouraged by me, where I see your faithfulness and you see my faithfulness, courage begets courage, faithfulness begets faithfulness. And in this, we link arms. In this, the brotherhood helps us to stay the course. Now, Nehemiah knows that to leave his post would be to leave behind the brotherhood, the like-minded men and women who are sacrificing and serving to make this thing come a reality. And he says, not, not only am I not going to leave that behind and put myself in a vulnerable position, I am going to stick to it because this is the work that God gave me. We see this in verse three. He says, there's nothing more important than this. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should I stop the work while I leave it and come down to you? Now, what this shows us is, is in Nehemiah, he has this radical, radical commitment, not only to the community, but to the mission. And we've seen this repeatedly. We saw this last week as, he, as he's sacrificing for his own community. We saw this just driving the mission forward through all the last six chapters. Nehemiah has this radical commitment to the community of God and the mission that God has laid before him because these things sort of serve as the true north on his compass, he refuses to go off course. He refuses to play the rigged game that Sanballat and Geshem and Tobiah have laid out before him. He says, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not coming down. I have too important of a work to do. Now, these guys don't take it very well. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, they all... They all get a little ticked off because Nehemiah is not given the time of day. And this, verse five, look at this. 
Um, they sent for me four times this way, and I answered them the same manner. In the same way, verse 5, in the same way, Sambalot, for the fifth time, sent his servants to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nation, nations, and Gashmu, now if you're looking in your ESV Bible, um, it, says, it says Geshem, but there's a little note there um, down below. It's Gashmu, it's, it's a Hebrew name, and it, for the people who translated the Bible, the people who are, who are putting this together for us to read in the English language, they're trying to make sense of, of this. There's a guy with a letter, a name that starts with a letter G named Geshem, who's in the same paragraph. So it's probably not Gashmu, it's Geshem, but this is part of the story here. It's a Hebrew name of Gashmu. It's an important part of the story, so let me keep going. It's reported among the nations, and Gashmu also says it, that you and the Jews intend to, to rebel. That is why you're rebuilding the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king, and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports, so now come and let us take counsel together. All right, what's going on here? Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem have realized that they cannot physically attack Nehemiah. So instead, they're going to try to assassinate his character. They're going to try to sway the public opinion. That they'll pump him full of these lies that, that there's ill intentions, that, that Nehemiah is power hungry, that he's, he's manipulative. He's trying to usurp the king of Persia's throne, take it for himself. Now, there's all kinds of irony in this, all right? Because what we just saw back in chapter five is this servant-hearted nature of Nehemiah. Like he's not grasping all the power. He's not trying to get all of these things. Instead, he's, he's laying himself down. He, he himself is sacrificing to have this position. But these guys pump all of these lies out. And Nehemiah tells us it's so. Like he tells us straight up in verse eight that this is all a lie. Look, verse eight, gotta find it. Verse eight, then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. So Nehemiah sets the record straight. He says, I have not done any of this. I've been above reproach. I'm not trying to be king. Now, we need to, to, to clear this up in our minds here, to, to have this understanding that Nehemiah is, in fact, above, above reproach here. And the reason that I, I need to clear this up right off the bat is because we tend to have a, a leadership skepticism. We, we tend to have a leadership mistrust, distrust, or disdained for leaders. So even when we hear something, when we hear the murmurs, when we hear the lies that are in circulation about various leaders, we have this tendency to, to if the scales are tipping one way or another, maybe not go all in on them being true, but we start to think, okay, yeah, there's probably some truth to this. The rumors are enticing, and we tend to sink our teeth in them very quickly, in fact, so quickly that we don't have time to do a, a fair trial, to, to actually measure the real facts, which Proverbs 18.13 warns us about. He says this, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. You, you make a judgment before you've accumulated all of the facts. It is to your own folly and your shame, right? And we do this when we gossip, 
Now, gossip might be one of the most threatening things that happens within the church. Gossip is destructive. It seeks to undermine and destroy either a person and what they're doing or a person and their reputation. Not only is it destructive, it is is a breaking of the ninth commandment. When God tells Moses, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And and what this does is as gossip, it's like a poison. As God, like gossip can beget more and more gossip. And it just plagues the organization. It plagues the church or the nonprofit or the school or whatever it might be. It just gets in there and destroys. And if left unchecked, if, if, if someone like Nehemiah doesn't stand up and say, these are all false and set the record straight, this can, and it actually has dealt fatal death blows before. Now this gossipiness, this cancer of, of gossip, the poison of gossip in, uh, in among the people of Jerusalem and the surrounding land is exactly what the enemies wanted. Like their intentions are stated here for us by Nehemiah in, in verse nine. For they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. Now let's... That's their intentions. Now, let's, let's look at how they try to do this. How they try to, to, to slander, how they try to destroy Nehemiah's reputation. The way they do this is with a, a, they do it publicly. It's an open letter. So they're traveling a great distance with this open letter. And an open letter means that anywhere this, this messenger would go, go, anywhere that there's people who will listen, they would make this proclamation based upon what the letter says. So this word, well, not as fast as it would today. But the word spreads, spreads throughout. Now, we could tweet something or put something on Facebook or whatever, and it's all across the world in a matter of seconds. This a little bit slow, a little slower in that time. But it, it points to the same reality that we experience today. We tend to have an appetite for drama. You know that about yourself? At heart, everybody's like a little seventh grade girl. Like, we just want the gossip. We want the news. We want to sink our teeth into it. And that's what this openly open letter to the world is meant to do. It's meant to feed the appetite for drama. It's an ancient version of clickbait here. If it were in our day and age, it would look like a negative Google review. It looked like the blasting Nehemiah on Facebook. Maybe starting a website or a podcast just to make sure everybody knows how scummy Nehemiah is. The whole point is to generate as much curiosity as possible with a conspiracy conspiracy theory, which is what this is. If you look at your Bible, the the subheading of this passage is conspiracy against Nehemiah. Now, what's interesting is how they bolstered the conspiracy theory. They did this in two ways. One, with generalities, and two, with Anonymity. Gosh, I cannot. Every time I write this word down, I can never say it. Anonymity. There we go. Anonymity. Generality and anonymity. Now, here's here's the generality part. In verse 6, it says that it's reported among the nations. So it's like this this glorified, like, everybody's saying it. Everybody says it. It must be true. So it's super vague. There's no real sources except for one. This is where the, the 
anonymity comes from. This is where Gashmu, this is why it's important that it's Gashmu, his name there and not Geshem, because it's Gashmu who said it. And that makes us all wonder who the heck is Gashmu? That's exactly right. Who the heck is Gashmu? Nobody knows. He's some sort of mystery man with, with credentials. And, and we're like, who is this guy? Does he have credentials? Is he reputable? Is he an honest guy? Does he really have an insider view into what's really going on here? And, and then just the questions keep going bigger and bigger. Like, is this guy even real? Now, nobody knows. I'm sure he is kind of real. In some sense, maybe he is a real person. But there's no clout, there's no, there's no authority really attached to his name to make sense of any of this that's been circulating. And because of the generality and the anonymity, they're at least able to attach somebody's name to these claims. What you have is a mass of people projecting suspicions, and more than likely, they're driven by their own insecurities. See, that, that's, that's how gossip operates. Do you realize this? Let me read your mail for a second. If you're somebody who's prone to gossip, the reason why you, you gravitate towards that is because there's something insecure in you that would rather be talking about somebody else than having your own faults exposed. A lot of the times, gossip is driven by the gossiper's own insecurity, which is true of the nations at this moment. Jerusalem is a threat to them. Now, when you hear murmurs, right, that everybody's saying it, this guy, Gashmu, he, he apparently said something, he's on the record. When something like this happens, we must seek the truth. See, that, that's, that's the number one orientation for Christians. What do Christians care about the most? It's the truth. We care about the truth. It's, it's been revealed to us by God's word. Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. Christians must seek out the truth. But Christians mustn't tolerate nor contribute to any gossip or slander at all because it's destructive. It's destructive to the subject, the person who's being gossiped about. Proverbs 11.9 says this, with this mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by the knowledge of the righteous are delivered. So he's saying here, the godless man who gossips sets out to destroy his, his neighbor, but it's also destructive for the gossiper. Proverbs 8, 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. See, if you, if you have a word of truth, it is, it is the word of life, but if you have a word of deceit, of lies, it's a word of death. Whichever one that you're using, whichever one you're spewing, will determine your future. Is it, is it life? Is it death? And in fact, in James 1, James actually talks a lot about um, the tongue. He, he has a, there is a, a, an emphasis on controlling, of bridling the tongue. And this is what he says in James 1, 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Those are some strong words. If you can't bridle your tongue, if you can't practice self-control and re restraint that shows a gap, a, a breakdown in your own held beliefs. Now, Nehemiah can't control what's going on out there. 
He, he can't really shut down all the gossip. He can't stop the people. He can't, you know, Gashmu probably has some podcasts at this point. He can't shut it down. But through the whole thing, through all of these attacks that are, are very much directed right at Nehemiah, what we see from him is that he remains steadfast. We see this in verse nine at the end. He says, oh God, strengthen my hands. He's not looking for the, the, uh, the ripcord. How do I get out of this? The eject button. No, he, he stays the course. Oh God, strengthen my hands. And this is an earnest prayer. I believe it's an earnest prayer because with all of this stuff that's going on, having this tough job, he's, he's being berated, he's got, all, he's got internal issues, external issues, they're going after his character. Nehemiah is bound to be discouraged, I would imagine. And he does, he does basically what I just told you to do a minute ago, right? Go find community, find the brotherhood. So, so we see Nehemiah going to his prophet, his prophet friend, uh, Shemaiah. He's looking for a little bit of encouragement. But what he finds is, is actually the opposite. Let's look at verse 10. Now, when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, the son of uh, Metabel, who was confined to his home. Now, COVID quarantine or something, I don't know. He was confined to his home. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. What's going on here? Ne Nehemiah's buddy is telling him, hey, bro, you should, just, you should just quit. Hang up the hat. Go, go, go to the temple and hide out. Let, this, let all the smoke clear out, and maybe you'll get through this with your life at the end. Now, this seems off to Nehemiah. Says, buddy, he thinks he probably has gone to him for, for some sort of brotherhood before, some encouragement. And he has this response in verse 11. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man as I should go into the temple and live? I will not, I will not go in. Now, these, these questions show us two things. First of all, Nehemiah, he's not a coward. Nehemiah has realized, I have operated within courage through this whole time. Why should I get to the end? We're almost done. Why should I give up now? Am I the kind of guy that's proven myself that I would just tuck and run when things get hard? He says, I'm not that guy. But the other part of this questioning that, that Nehemiah turns back is that, why would I go to the temple? Well, For Nehemiah to go into the temple would be a dangerous thing for him. Because Nehemiah, he, he's not a priest. He's not a Levite. Nehemiah is unqualified to actually enter into the temple. He's got no access. And what we see is there's this division of authority. We saw Nehemiah is governing over the people. But there's also this, this spiritual sphere where there are other people who are appointed to take care of spiritual matters, right? The priests. And Nehemiah knows I'm unqualified to go in there. And if I go into God's temple, I put my own life in danger because I will be liable to judgment before God. 
right? So, so if you were a gambling man, it's, it's like saying this. I could either hang out here and maybe people come and attack me, or I could go into the temple and for sure I'd be sinning against God. For sure I'd be standing in the place where I would be judged and it would not go well for me. One of these two, either one of these options are terrible options. But one is less terrible than the other. And he, he sort of sifts through it, says, I'm not doing that. Now, why would his buddy, Shemaiah, Shemaiah, prophesy it like this? Well, verse 12 goes on to tell us. And I understood and I saw that God had not sent Shemaiah. I'm not saying his name right anymore. It's too far gone. He had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin and so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Now, here's all the irony of this. Where Nehemiah was being accused of bribing these false prophets to say something good about him, his enemies have paid. They've actually done it. They've paid this guy to make a false prophecy against Nehemiah. And this is one of his own buddies paid off by the enemy. Rather than being a true friend, he betrays Nehemiah. He, he tries to undermine him and all of the things that he's working toward. Not only is that going on, but there are other prophets. If you look forward to verse 14, there are other prophets that are intending to make him afraid and in his fear step into sin. Now, this whole dynamic revolves around making Nehemiah afraid, right? Invoking fear in him, getting, making him kind of like walk on eggshells around him. The, the whole point of it is to make Nehemiah afraid. And in his fear, they're trying to get him to sin. So that way, there would actually be a legit accusation to bring against Nehemiah. See, they're, they're trying to manipulate him to disqualify himself. This whole thing is a ploy to try to discredit him. And perhaps... If Nehemiah were to go along with this, if, if Nehemiah were to be afraid and let fear drive him, he, he would have been ousted. He would have, he would have been disqualified and, and brought to shame because of these actions. Now, if you just sit in Nehemiah's mind for a moment, you can imagine his fatigue. You can imagine his discouragement through the whole narrative of this story, leaving, leaving Susa to travel a long distance, going back, leading a hard work, facing attacks from the outside, dealing with family drama on the inside. Here's another attack that comes. And now his best friend has betrayed him. Well, best friend, that's a reach, but his friend. Now, in almost every circumstances, we see somebody that goes through that and it's like, oh yeah, they deserve a free pass. They... they they, should, they deserve to do whatever they want, whatever will make them happy. But in the midst of all this, we see the opposite of that. We, we don't see Nehemiah flying off the handle. We don't see Nehemiah tucking his tail and running. What we see is Nehemiah clinging to God because God, when everything else lets him down, when everything else breaks down, God is his only hope. And in that, in that clinging to God, 
God gives Nehemiah globs of strength, gobs of courage. See, this is what's essential for us in the Christian life. The, the most repeated command in the Bible is don't be afraid. Well, what are we going to do? Because you can't just shut it off. You can't just shut fear down and not have any sensitivities to that at all. But, but the, the question is not so much will I be afraid, but what do I do when I experience fear? Do I bow to it? Do I break? Do I, do I collapse underneath of it? Or do I stand up underneath of it in courage and strength? For the Christian, it's courage. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letter says this, the courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at its testing point, which means at the point of its highest reality. So in order to have any kind of virtue requires courage. Now, the thing about us right now, just as, as the church at large, Christians in general, we tend to lack courage. We, we tend to, to be more afraid than we are courageous, especially as, as we give ourselves to doing hard things for Jesus. And as we do hard things for Jesus, those things run opposed. And we find ourselves doing one of three things. One, we either bow to the mob. We, well, everybody's saying it, so then I'm, it must be true. Because everybody's saying it, I don't want to offend anybody. And so what we do is we just, just sort of cave in on our convictions. Put our head down. Try not, to, try not to disturb anybody. Try not to offend anybody. We bow to the mob. Number two, we keep our convictions, but we run and hide in fear. Right, so I'm willing to keep my opinions close to my chest. I'm, I'm willing to keep my faith close to my chest. I, I don't dare make it known because if I do that, I might get hurt. Somebody might come after me. So somebody might intend harm to me. And so instead of, of letting it exude from us, right, the, 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 this little lot of mine, instead of letting it shine, what we do, we hide it away. We hide in a way because we are fearful that we might get hurt. It might be too risky, too costly for us. So the third thing that we find ourselves doing when we lack courage is that we get in our feelings. We, we add fuel to the fire of, of the drama. So as, as Nehemiah is experiencing this tidal wave of opposition, he could just like, let the rage out, right? He, he could go to town and, and everything that the enemy says, I'm gonna say something back. I'm gonna say it harder and more aggressive. He could let this rage against the enemy sort of spew out and retaliate. I think that as Christians, we're seeing all three of these play out in different ways in the church, but no matter which way you let this spew out, it all creates vision drift. It generates a fear that leads us into sin in one way or another. Now, Nehemiah doesn't do any of that. Nehemiah doesn't make any of those three mistakes. And there's a reason for that. And the reason he doesn't do those things is because he knows that God is judge and he will be vindicated. 
Nehemiah knows that God gets the last word. See, the same thing is said about Jesus in 1 Peter 2, and I didn't know this was gonna be the case, but it was also our, it was our, our profession of faith today. 1 Peter chapter 2, 22 through 23, says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So like similar to Nehemiah, though Nehemiah was not sinless, in this instant, there was no deceit. He was not spinning it back. When he was reviled, this is speaking about Jesus, by the way. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did what Nehemiah did only to the nth degree, even better. He's, he's the truer and better Nehemiah. And we can see a lot of parallels between Nehemiah and Jesus in the sense that, that Jesus had the hardest job ever, right? Nehemiah had a hard job. Jesus had a hard job. He was sent to save the whole cosmos, all of humanity, all of creation. Jesus was to come and redeem it and save it. But just like Nehemiah had enemies on his mission, Jesus too had enemies, he had, he had the prince of the power of the air, the, the prince of darkness, Satan and his, and his demons. He had even the religious opposition coming from the Pharisees. They all wanted to stop him. Like Nehemiah, Jesus knew what it was like to be betrayed. Jesus knew what it was like to be lied about. As he's standing before tri uh, in trial, before the, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders and the Pontius Pilate, all of these lies are being brought against Jesus and, and he's just taking it on the chin. Now, none of that, none of that deterred Jesus from doing what he was sent to do. We're told his face was set. And in Jesus, we see steadfast courage, a courage that just grinds and pushes and presses, that stays the course. And this steadfast courage led Jesus to a cross. See, that's what it took to get the job done. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree to redeem us from our sin. Jesus had to take it upon himself that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. In verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. See, on, on Good Friday, as Jesus gave up his last breath, the enemy thought he had won. The enemy thought he had snuffed out this, this kingdom movement that Jesus had brought about. As Jesus took his last breath, they thought it was over. But guess what? It didn't stop the mission. It didn't. This is the leader that, that you, you take him out and things just blow up even more. Though Jesus was killed and buried and for three days was in the grave, God raised him by his power and vindicated Jesus by the Holy Spirit. In this, he paid the price for our sins, the, the, the kind of sins that are, are fear-induced, where we don't stand up for Jesus, we don't continue to press on doing hard things for Jesus, and, and they were, these sins were condemned in Jesus' own flesh. And by this, he heals us, he gives us light, he gives us righteousness, and what he proves to us is that God is always trustworthy. Even when everything is crumbling around us, even when difficulty and opposition and, and depression and discouragement come along, God is always trustworthy. 
especially through trials, especially in difficulty. And it's in those moments, you know, it might not feel like God's kindness, but let me tell you, it is God's kindness that he strips away our idols, those things that we go to for false comfort, the things that we go to sort of prop ourselves up and make ourselves good that are cheap substitutes for the true and living God. He kindly pulls these statues down. He kindly destroys these idols so that when the day is over, all we have is Christ. And what we realize is all we've needed this whole time is Christ. Facing hard times and doing hard things for Jesus as the word of God and his Holy Spirit directs us to do does not mean that we are failing. This is an association that we need to break. It's a myth. Right? Facing hard times, being persecuted, facing opposition does not mean you're doing the wrong thing. It doesn't mean you're, you're failing. It might, we need to examine wisely. Is this, okay, maybe God is. But if you're operating by the word of God, if that is the light to your feet and the path, facing hard times does not mean that you're being punished for walking righteously. Nehemiah is not being punished. As you face hard times, you need to realize that the enemy is still flailing about. There's been a death blow that's been issued. There's an expiration date to his existence. But the enemy for now is still flailing about to some degree. He's coming after God's people, tempting them toward discouragement and despondency. He's accusing us of, of doing wrong things. And actually, the accuser, that's Satan is, is the accuser, if it weren't for Jesus taking our sins upon himself, then we would be rightly accused. But what he wants to do is say that Jesus wasn't enough. He didn't actually pay the whole price. You still got to do it yourself. But in those moments, we need to stand fast and cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this, we, we resist fear. We stand strong in the courage that God offers us, and we walk without sin. And it's just like the old hymn says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, I, because Jesus faced the biggest opponent, sin, death, and the grave. I can face tomorrow. I can have courage and conviction to do what he's called me to do. It's just as Aslan says to Lucy, courage, dear heart. Christian, take courage. Take courage. Be not afraid. Don't stop doing hard things for Jesus. Don't take your hand off the plow. Even when it gets tough and rocky soil comes, keep pressing, knowing that God will finish what he started. And we have this promise that the Apostle Paul closed with this in Galatians 6, 9. He says, and let us not grow weary of doing good. Don't grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Brothers and sisters, let us draw our strength from Christ, our courage from Christ who has overcome everything for us that we might live to glorify him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have done what we cannot do.
The opponents of sin, death, and the grave were too strong, too mighty for us. The, the accusations of Satan are, are, have, are true. We are sinners in need, in need of grace, but, but the gospel speaks a better word that you have paid the price for our sins, that you have brought us to a place that we might put our sin to death and live righteously and live within the will of God, which is the safest place to be. And so we ask that you would strengthen your people now, encourage your people now through your word, through your son, through your spirit that we might honor you in all things and the work would press on for your glory, for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 